Five, score! Rick Five. We decided to get ourselves back in the game again with our podcast. Rick Five. Probably the craziest story that you're ever going to hear about hockey. We're going to be coming back to you on a regular basis. You are listening to Squid and the Ultimate Leafs fan. Hello Canada and hockey fans of the United States and Newfoundland. And an extra big hello to Canadian servicemen overseas. Episode 54 of the Squid and Ultimate Leaf Fan Show. I'm Mike Wilson, the Ultimate Leafs fan. Joining me as always, my winger, Ricky Squid Vibe. Squid, first off, big shout out to your son, Justin, and the Fort Wayne Comets, the newly crowned Kelly Cup champions of the ECHL. Yeah, and they're still partying, Mike. <laughs> yeah, you're saying. And I guess, if, I guess if I was 31 years old and I wanted, I'd probably be doing the same darn thing, so... Well, all the, the best, of them the very tri- best of them in a very trying season and, uh, you know, best of luck moving forward. And, uh, hopefully things get back to a little bit more normality, if you will. Squid, trying to write an intro for our guest today was probably the most challenging aspect of today's show outside <laughs> of how we can squeeze his fantastic career into our time frame. Undrafted, played in the NHL, WHA, coached, you played for him, being an executive of yeah. every level. The ultimate hockey lifer, currently working as a senior advisor for the Florida Panthers. Welcome to the show, Rick Dudley. Rick, how are we keeping? Really well. And thanks for the introduction. I've been very fortunate. Yes, well, you've earned it. And uh, first off, another congratulations on a terrific season for the Florida Panthers. Must be exciting times for the organization going into next year. It's been incredible, really. I, I um, You know, we looked at the roster at the, when we first got together and... Um, and Bill Zito was always confident. Went from the time Billy came on as the general manager, um, he be he he was very confident that he could put some pieces together that that would work, and and he certainly did. Well, it sure looks like I mean, from the results. I mean, do you think now just how are the Panthers going to approach free agency, knowing what you guys know and coming out of last year, and, and particularly with the circumstances facing us as the draft approaches? Well, I, I think I think healthy, a healthy attitude is the way Billy approaches it, which is he's trying to make the team better every day. And every move he makes is designed to, to make us either a little bit better or a whole lot better. And sometimes you get lucky and you get the Carter Verhage's of this world that come in and make you a whole lot better in a hurry. And um, sometimes you just make yourself a little bit better and that, that works too. Uh, a third round yeah. draft choice of the Maple Leafs, by the way, Carter Verhage, just for all your league fans <laughs> yeah, out there, take Sunday. note. Sorry. <laughs> I played with him, I believe, and believe he played with him in Bridgeport. And I remember watching him play quite a bit. And at that time, he was a kid, though. I think he was probably about 20 or maybe 21 years old. And I thought, and he played a little bit in the ECHL, I think, with the Missouri Mavericks as well. And uh, I, I was kept saying to myself, like, geez, I don't know if this guy will ever play above the American League. And then, you know, lo and behold, he just made himself into one heck of a hockey player uh, in the last three years. It's been, it's been he incredible. Did. He did. And yeah. I think, I think he did two things or he ha- always had the IQ, he ha- especially the offensive IQ, but he always had the hockey IQ, but I think he gained a couple of steps. And I think in Tampa, they have some really good people there. Tracy Tutton's there. And I think, I think he worked with her and, and the other people they have there. And I think he, he, gave himself a step and that's all he needed because he had the rest. He had the skill. He certainly had the, the thinking. And, and when you gave him another step, then it made him something special. 
Now, Rick, when you're, I mean, you're, you're obviously looking at it from a lot of different angles from where you sit. But when the team's looking for players, I mean, has the game changed that much that, that they're looking for pure skill and speed or, you know, does size still matter? I mean, obviously, if you have skill and speed and size, I guess that's, yeah. that's a great combination. But, but I mean, you know, or are they looking more for the smaller guys that can, you know, fly and, and handle the puck and that sort of thing? It's a good question, a real good question. I think – I think what's happened over the last 10 or 15 years is that maybe the priorities shifted a little bit. Maybe the size at one time, if you weren't 6'1 as a forward and you weren't 6'2 as a defenseman, people didn't look at you. Mm -hmm. um, I think that changed. And I think I think that the things that the, the hockey sense and the character and, and obviously skating, those three became paramount. Now, if you've got hockey sense, skating and skill and size, now you're a first-round draft pick for sure, um, <laughs> as, as you always were. But, um, but I, I think the, skate, the size has taken a, not, not a back seat because everybody would like to have the biggest, most skilled team. But I think it's, it's just been – there's just the order. At one time, if you weren't big, you weren't going to, you weren't going to be a pro prominent draft pick and you weren't going to be a prominent signing. So I think that's shifted a little bit. Now, Rick, the, the Panthers have some cap room, but a few players are signed, but mostly are restricted free agents. Do you see a trend with this flat, flat cap the next couple of years that will players will opt for, Scott and I talk about this a lot on the show, the players will opt for maybe less in favor of term, i.e. the Ryan Nugent Hopkins deal? Well, it could go either way. If, they, if the expectation is that down the road the cap's going to go well yeah. up again, they might take a short-term deal and say, I'm pretty good. Or, or they might take the, the term as you suggest, and, and it'll, it depends on how the person feels about himself. If you're <laughs> if you're a pretty confident hockey player, you say, you know what, I'm going to take a one-year deal. And um, if you're not, you may say, you know what, you know, three million over five years looks pretty good. Yeah, yeah. that's great. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does. Now, what what do you think about the upcoming free agent season, Rick? Because it does, it appears to me that there's enough teams in cap limbo, so to speak, that, you know, all these guys that, you know, good players that, that are fr uh, unrestricted free agents are making five million, five and a half, four and a half. I think they're all expecting a little raise. I'm not really sure that, that that's going to happen this year. I, I don't know. What, I want to get your take on that. No, I, I, I agree with you. I'm not sure it will happen either. It may, and there may be a couple of people that are that are what I would call overpaid contracts, and that may happen on day one. But I, I would look, I would look at day two and day three and so on down the road, and maybe some people who who, who settle for for a reasonable contract may get signed earlier. I, I, I think people are going to be very careful with what they do with their money. Mm -hmm. Well, Rick, uh, we want to test your memory now and go back a little bit. Now, that's oh. obviously a big issue with Squid and I, so it's so don't feel, <laughs> don't feel bad here because this goes on all the time. But you pretty much bypassed your junior career, but jump right to the pro level. Walk us through that whole period wow. uh, starting with your career. Well, I, I was a lacrosse player. Yep. Not much. I wasn't a... Hockey wasn't my, more football and lacrosse than than hockey, and I um, ended up playing junior lacrosse in Toronto, and for the Mississauga PCOs, and 
I was kind of nasty in lacrosse, so <laughs> somewhat noticeable. And the owner, the owner, uh, Howard Pallet, the owner of the Dixie Beehives, watched a lot of our games, and he thought he'd, I'd be a nice addition. And Al Gordonier, Al Gordonier, a wonderful lacrosse player, wonderful hockey player, he played on the Dixie Beehive team, and Howard went to him and said, get that guy out for a tryout. <laughs> and he's nuts. <laughs> and uh, and um, so Al talked to me, and I said, Al, I haven't played at that anything close to that level. And he said, no, they want you to come out in a tryout. And eventually Al talked me into it. And it's amazing how, how things can happen because of the, I've, I've been able to work ever since in hockey and have a wonderful time doing it. But, but Al talked me into going out. I got in a fight the first shift, and they signed, they signed me to a junior B contract at that point. And it so happened that I, when I say I've been fortunate, I really have. Um, the St. Catharines Blackhawks at the time needed toughness in their lineup. So 21 games into a junior B, I think it was, no, to 21 games I played in junior, in major junior. Halfway through the junior B season, the, the St. Catharines Blackhawks, who were the parent team of the Beehives, called me up and I fought every game. And, and I didn't realize at the time, but they, they called me up because I was done with school and they could trade me to the Quebec League where they'd gotten two players. So they owed a couple of players, except one thing. I fought every game. I got <laughs> really popular, and they couldn't trade me. So they traded another player. I think I think his name was McKenzie. I'm not sure. But they traded another player, and, and I ended up staying in St. Catharines. I wasn't drafted. I was added to a negotiations list with the Minnesota North Stars, and somehow through a couple of fumbling years of pro early, I, I found my way to Buffalo where Punch and Black took a liking to me. Well, let's let's go back. Like 1972, this, this was no fumbling or this was no uh, lucky break. You you playing for the Cincinnati Swords in the AHL. You scored 40 goals and had 40 assists, 44 assists and 84 penalty minutes too, so you kept that up. So those are pretty impressive numbers. So And I can honestly say that, and people should realize, words mean a lot. Floyd Smith was my coach I had come off a season where I think I had 350 minutes and six goals. And Floyd called me into his office yeah. and he said, you know, I, I want you to be a tough hockey player, but I don't, you shouldn't have, want, think you have to fight every shift. And he said, I'm going to put you on a line with Billy Inglis. Billy was the best player in the American League by country mile at the time. And he said, I'm going to play you with him. And all of a sudden, I said, he must think something of me. And, and it actually, it actually, his words and the fact that he believed in me changed everything. It changed my whole life. Well, again, not hockey not being your number one sport, you're now at this level. Like, it must have started dawning on you, wait a minute, this is for real. I mean, this well, league is pretty good, and maybe the NHL is a possibility. Yeah, and that year I played, I got to play a few games in the NHL, and um, I, I – I, I started to realize that, you know what, I'm closer than I think. And, <laughs> and so I, you know, I was a little bit of a wild guy and I might like to party a little bit. And I know not, neither of you guys were like that, but no, never. I, never I actually that. consciously changed because. Well, I, you know me, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> That's, I said it for you, <laughs> but, um, but I, I got a chance to play and I got a chance to see that I wasn't that far off. And I said, I'm not going to, I'm not going to screw this up. 
I'm going to, I'm going. And I, I changed, I changed. I still, I still went out with the guys, but I didn't, I didn't stay out all night and I changed my eating habits and, and I became a health nut of sorts and, and it ended up working for me. It's great. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, and then, you know, you spent several years in Buffalo and a lot of success there and then end up in Cincinnati where I actually got to play against you. Uh, I believe the WHA team there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the problem was we had all those guys, Billado, Beaton, all uh, their Bano, all those guys the year before. Then they got rid of them all, and they brought in uh, six 19-year-olds, and and then all of a sudden we're playing against teams that had four or five tough guys, and it was like. I mean, they took it out on us pretty pretty bad that year. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> that was a, that team, the team that started in in the Glenn Sonmore put together in Birmingham was quite a team. It was all kinds of fun to play. I played on a line. I I play. I centered a line with Willie Trognitz, and uh, oh boy, who was on the other? Um, I don't, I don't remember, but we, our shifts never lasted more than 15 seconds. <laughs> never. They were, it was a fourth line and I ended up as a center on it because I was somewhat tough and, and it, I, the puck would drop and you knew it was coming every time. The game, the game has changed a bit. Well, you must have set a few record scoring goals, but you scored, scored over 40 a couple of times playing in that league. So yeah, that, there yeah, must have been some pretty quick goals. Again, I, again I reflect back on that conversation with Floyd Smith, and I don't I don't mean to belittle something, but I, I'll never forget it. And I know when, when I've, I've mentioned it to him a couple of times, and he doesn't think he did anything, but he did. He made me he made me feel differently about myself as an athlete, and it was a big, big difference. Now, so players... When did you, uh, yeah, when, when did you start thinking about getting into coaching? Uh, I mean, obviously, probably near your, the end of your career, but like, what spurred that on for you? What got you interested in the fact that you wanted to be behind the bench? I know it's probably the next best thing to be in a player, but you know, what what kind of got your juices flowing in that direction? Well, I had I had bought a place in Florida on the beach, and and I was retiring. I was, 30, I think I was 34. Um, I was coming to the end of the road. I wasn't going to be able to play at that level anymore, and I knew it. Um, I had three knee operations, and I just it just wasn't there. Um, and I was in. I, I, John Ferguson was wonderful to me, and and he um, he asked me what I wanted to do after my third knee operation. I said, you know what? Maybe I could go to the American League and try it because I can't play at the NHL level at this point. So I went down there and played seven games. I called Fergie and uh, said, I can't play at this at the NHL level anymore. And, and we worked out a deal, and he was really good to me. And um, I ended up – I was on my way. I was driving to Florida, to my place in Florida, and a friend of mine from Cincinnati that I'd met during all the years I was in Cincy, he had bought – he had bought a minor, minor, minor league, the Atlantic Coast Hockey League. He had bought a team in that league, and he said, I've got three wins and 23 losses. I'm drawing 300 people a game. He said, will you come in and help me? And I said, I'll stop by. And I said, I'll take a, I'll take a look at what you have. And, and I went there in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, a wonderful city, and um, I never made it to Florida. 
I just, you know what? I said, I'll give you two weeks. And I started in and worked really hard at it. And first of all, I learned so much there, but, but I realized somewhere, somewhere, as you said, it's the next, next best thing to playing. And I realized that very quickly. And, and it was a challenge. It was fun. It was, and people depended on me and it was nice to have that. And I, I, I just stayed there. I ended up, I ended up uh, buying the team from him and running the team for four years. We won three championships and lost in the finals the other year. And people started to notice me a little bit from higher leagues. Did you ever consider playing for the team? Not a chance. I hung them up. <laughs> and besides that, they had some tough guys in that league. And I, I said, you oh, know, yeah. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> you don't need any more. Now, touch on some of the challenges your experiences you were going. You were learning on the job, obviously, because you're starting to coach. You become the owner. You become kind of the chief bottle washer, too. So, yes, some of the challenges. I drove the bus. You not, drove the bus. Not, when we had a bus driver, we had we had a bus driver, but some of those drives were were eleven to fifteen hours long, and I don't know what happened here. Um, and um, during the drives, he would get tired, so I would I would drive part of the way. And as the season went on, the lot that he would get tired earlier and earlier. So what turned out what was a thirteen hour drive, and I would drive the last two hours. At the end, it was the last six hours so it, it was it was an experience but um i the one thing i won't forget is after i bought the team the 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 payroll came in and and i had to write a check for ten thousand dollars now i made a little money playing hockey but ten grand for a week was, was a little it, it i said you know this could get old in a real hurry yeah. And you know what? The, fortunately for me, we started to draw, and it didn't cost me a whole lot of money after that. So um, I like the, I like the, I like the buses because I got to tell you, <laughs> when I was coaching in Charleston, South Carolina, in the ECHL, we were on a trip, and the bus driver had to go to the camp. So he calls me up to the front. And he says, "He says, here, grab the wheel." He says, "I'm gonna I'm gonna pull out." And he says, you drive until I'm finished in the washroom. I'm going, like, what? Are you kidding me? Like, seriously? He goes, oh, yeah, it's no problem. Don't worry about it. We're on the highway, so it wasn't it wasn't like I had to go into a city. Anyway, we're going along. Everything's fine. And then all of a sudden, we go down this long, gradual hill. And at the bottom of the hill, there had been there was an accident or something, and all the cars were stopped. And I'm pumping that brake like you wouldn't believe. I had to get I had to get about four guys to help me figure out how to stop this thing going downhill. So that was frightening for me. Oh yeah, I've I can tell you stories about about freezing rain and things of that nature, driving and and coming up over a hill and the the brakes don't do anything. And there were some there were some frightening moments. Now. Um- Rick, talk about uh, the biggest adjustment to coaching from playing. Because as a player, you know, if something goes wrong, you can go out in the ice and correct it or do it yourself. But as a coach, you can only advise them or yell at them or whatever you do. Well, I think yeah, I think the thing that I realized, and maybe it's because I played so many different roles in sports, I, un- I did kind of understand that different players had to be handled differently. And you've got to be almost a psychologist. You you've got to be able to, to what what's the trigger point for this player? And the one one guy like Vivi, he'll be a guy that he needs to be encouraged. 
he needs to be told that he's doing what you need him to do. Is that you were that kind of player, right? I was that kind of player. I wanted, I wanted, I wanted to know the coach felt strongly that I could help. Him. And and there are other players they need to have their ass kicked, and it's and it's it's um it's a tough that's a tough job. And I think today's coaches are getting very good at that. I think for a while it was it seemed to be all hard ass coaches, and now it's it's changed to the players' coach again. And I kind of like to see that. Well, it's funny you say that, Rick, because I remember when I first got my first coaching job, first thing I did was went out and bought five books on psychology, a couple of sports psychology books, a couple of regular ones, and I read the heck out of those books. And I got to tell you, it helped me so much because I was able to identify a player and the guys, like you said, that needed a pat on the back or encouragement or a guy that needed a kick in the ass. Or a guy that maybe I didn't even want around because he wasn't good for our team, yeah. Uh, whether he was a good player or not. So those books really, and then it talked so much about communication, which I think is so much that that is the biggest key, I think, for a coach uh, back then and today, is that if you communicate properly with your players, you're going to get the best out of them. Well, for sure, and I, I was fortunate. My brother. My whole family were teachers, and my brother was a principal. He was a teacher and a, and a principal. And every once in a while, I'd call him. He helped me a lot because I could call him and, and describe the situation. He'd usually, because he's dealt with young people that all the time, and he, he, he taught in northern Ontario, and it was a tough place to teach, but he'd, he had learned a lot about the psychology of teaching and, and, and getting people to buy in. And so he helped me a lot. But, yeah, the, the that's for me. It's it's probably before you learn all your technical, the the systems and the strategies. You have to have a, a basis in in psychology to a degree. Well, it's funny. The few coaches we've had on the show, Bruce Boudreau, as an example, told us when he first went to Washington, after coming from the minors, he, it was almost like you have to have twenty three different sort of approaches to twenty three mm -hmm. different players. And he remembered early in his career, Mike Green coughed up a puck, cost him a goal. He went down and lost it on him. And he said he looked down at the bench a couple of seconds later and he was destroyed. Yeah. He couldn't do a thing the rest of the night and he thought, oh shit, what have I done? And he knew right then and there that that was not the right approach to this player. And he then quickly adjusted his whole method to deal with the players. And Rick, you went through the same thing where you would have to pull players aside. I'm sure Rick Dudley, you had to do the same thing too, pull players aside and talk to them individually, but on a different scope than you would say a star, whoever. Oh, for sure. And there is a, there's a completely, and, I, and again, Vibe was a star player. He would have been able to, to relate to that. But myself, I was in lacrosse. I was the guy. Mm -hmm. and, and I could, I could, I could realize what goes through the mind a little bit, not because of hockey, but because of lacrosse. I, I was a, I was a player that in a league I was the most I was an NHL player playing in a lacrosse league where I was where I was a pretty big ticket and um, and so I realized what it meant to be have a franchise that meant you you were the leader of that franchise and and sometimes that responsibility it needs to be understood and I think there's a lot of hockey players I think our game's a funny game because we went through a period of time where it seemed like the only coaches that were going to be successful were, were going to be the hard hard guys, and I didn't like that at all, to be honest with you. I, I liked. No, I, I didn't I like it. Enjoyed it. I always enjoyed liking my coach, mm 
And I think most players do. Yeah. I, I, I didn't like it a whole lot either, Rick, because until basically, well, he was a hard ass too, Mike Keenan, but he was a good coach. And then on the Buffalo where you were, when you came in after Ted Sater and things got a lot better because you used to, you used to communicate with us and, the guys I had before, I mean, it was just yell, scream all the time and, and and really never sit down. Cause, and that was one of the things I took to heart when I got into coaching was every day I made it my goal to pick three players and have a conversation with them. And, and it didn't even sometimes necessarily have to be about hockey. It could be about, you know, we took care of the apartments, so it's like, How's your apartment? If, you, if the guy had a girlfriend, is she okay? Does she like it? You know, whatever it takes to get the most out of your your players, I think is is what you need to do. Well, and I, that's I think, not what we that's not what we had in the seventies and eighties. Well, I think that I think that communication is a key. I also believe that they have to understand that you can snap, and I'm sure you did sometimes, and I certainly did. Well, yeah. You remember me? I could snap when I wanted to. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But they have to they have to realize that you have that capacity. But I think they have to always also believe that you care about them, that you want them to succeed. Yeah. Well, that's funny you mentioned that about you snap, and it just came to my mind. <laughs> and I lay years ago when you were coaching Buffalo, just visiting a friend of mine who played on the Kings at the time, and we were staying at the Sheridan, and actually you guys were staying at the same hotel. And you'd played the Kings the night before and lost, and you were sitting on the team bus, and the look on your face, you were in the front seat. Well, I never got to go walk by and the door open. I said, "What's whose bus is this? And I said, oh, there's, uh, oh, there's, oh, that must be the Sabre players. I didn't realize you guys. <laughs> Look on your face. It's like somebody had stolen not only your lunch, they had their head in the fridge looking for your dinner and had kicked your dog down the street. And, I the didn't, I, there and nobody said a word. I didn't lose well. <laughs> well, that was very, very well. I, well I, I, I can attest to that. I, I can attest good. to that wholeheartedly, but but I, you know what? I will say, and not because Rick's on here or anything, but of all the coaches I had in my professional career, nobody was prepared more than Rick. Nobody knew exactly what we needed to do on that particular night to beat whatever team we were playing. And I, 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 I'm honest. I just, I just said no one was, you know, uh, I mean, it was now he, Unfortunately, he didn't let the ref leave the referees alone enough. Yeah, so, I agree. So they I, cut. You know, they, they, <laughs> that, that, that actually, I can tell the truth. I did. I yelled at the referees because I didn't want to yell at my players. And uh, you have to have, okay. when, if, you're, if you're an intense person, you have to be able to vent sometimes. And I certainly did. And it was a, it was a failing of mine for sure as a coach. I should have left them alone, but I couldn't. Well, they're well, just you couldn't, you couldn't they're the easy targets. Yell at the trainers instead. <laughs> well, Rick, I was going to ask you about uh, go back to the championship years in ECHL. I was going to ask you, you know, how rewarding was it, but I, I think I'll defer that and, and comment more along the lines. Did you have a chance to even savor the moment? Because now, as the owner and bus driver and everybody running the hockey club, did you immediately have to switch over to the mode of thinking we got to stay on top because everyone's going to be oh. gunning for us? So right back to work. I was also the president of the league, so I, I had to worry about I had to worry about whether there was going to be. And it was a we had six teams, then we had seven teams. We went to five teams. When we went to five teams, I had to get a sixth team because the league one of the owners would fold. There was a lot of different 
sources of pressure. So, so when I ended up in the National Hockey League as a coach, I guess I, I guess I dealt with things that were, that were probably worse than than losing a hockey game. I didn't, I don't, I don't remember being more calm about it. But, um, but there was the the things that I did in the minor leagues and the things that the the preparation that it was. It, I learned so much. I learned so much at the Atlantic Coast Hockey League that I could never trade that for anything. Did you ever do any scouting in that era? Oh yeah, I sure did. We had you found time we, to do that. We did after my first period of time down there. We were trying to find a way to make ourselves different, and we had a we had a tryout for the league, and and each team would be obligated to keep six players from that draft on their team, and so we went to that, and I was. Maybe I was smarter than the other guys. Maybe I was I, I prepared more, but I brought people with me, and I brought several people with me because I knew I'd be. We were going to pick those players from a tournament that we we put on in Utica, New York, and so I brought a couple of other people, and I'll never forget it. Dan Olson was a was a, a goaltender for us down there. I brought him along, and he lived in Winston Salem. I brought him, and he he said something about he said he liked a kid named Joe. Joe, oh God, I'm forgetting. I'm forgetting things. Um, but he, but he liked him, and I we asked. All, we all are, Rick. We yeah. all are. <laughs> and anyway, well, he ended up second in the league in scoring, and and I would not have noticed him if Joe had not, if if uh, Dan Olson had not pointed him out to me. So, um, so I guess. We, and, and we had great success there. We drew a lot of people. I sold the team and, and even made a little money and went on with, I got a chance to coach in the International League and it was fun. Why talk about that experience. You ended up being so, coach of the year there. Um, well, before, before you get into oh, sorry, your coaching and, and then on to GMs and, and what you're doing now as, as a consultant and all that kind of, I'm not quite consultant full time, but you had a you had a guy who was your assistant coach in Buffalo who I love, but he seems to get a bad rap everywhere he goes, and just because he doesn't get along with the media. <laughs> now you know I happen to think Wonder that he's who you're talking about. <laughs> well, I think you know already, but um, you know, and I happen to think he's a heck of a coach, and I think you know all he wants is the best for the players and the best for the team, and but it seems that everywhere he goes controversy surrounds him and I don't know what that why that is I really don't because he's not a good loser and right after right after a game John, John's it's hard if John if John fields a question that he thinks is a silly question he's he's pretty blunt about saying he thinks it's a silly question but he's a wonderful coach I talked to him the day before yesterday and he's doing well um I anticipate he'll be coaching an NHL team soon. I, I don't see why not. He's a heck of a coach, and and I'm proud. I'm, I'm proud of where he's. He, the one thing about John, he was two things. He was very bright, and he was an unparalleled worker. The pre preparation he put into a hockey game was there were very few that did like that, and um, so I've admired John from. You know, I met him at a funeral. I, my assistant player coach in Flint had died. 
And John was very close to him in the Atlantic Coast Hockey League. And he came up to that funeral. And I met him there. And I said, maybe there's, maybe we could work together sometime. And I happened that, that summer, I happened to get the job in New Haven in, in coaching the Kings American League team. And they wanted me to have a player coach. And I said, well, if I can get make the money work, can I have one that isn't a player coach? Because I've always believed that player coaches, it's it's a very tough job and it affects, it's going to affect one or the other, either the coaching or the playing. And so I had John in mind and it was a great choice. And they, and Roy Malacher and Nick Beverly were, were nice enough to say, okay, you can have, you can have what you want there. And so I brought John there. He worked for very little money that first year, but it turned out to be a pretty good move for him. Oh, absolutely. And a, a guy that is a great, he's really a great guy. I don't think a lot of people understand what he does with the military and the people that have been in the military and all that kind of stuff. And what he does for charities and everything else. I mean, he's just a wonderful person. His whole family actually is. I, I believe his son is in the military now. Is he not? I think right? he is. I believe he is. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, but I don't know. He just, uh, I think that's probably one of the things that coaches maybe should look at and say, okay, we lost. I'm not really happy about it. I'm, I'm going to wait and I'm not going to do my press conference for a half an hour, 45 minutes, because I got to calm down. You know, what I mean? Maybe that would help a little bit. Do you, do you know how many times I've wanted to say some of the things that John said? You know, <laughs> you know, you, you, you're, you're, having problems the team is losing and you and obviously when the team loses the coach is on the line and some guy in the media asks um do you think you'll be coaching the same time next week you, you want you want to grab him by the throat but you can't do that john john would john was was honest enough to say what he was thinking well or yeah. your goalie let in six goals on 10 shots right. and how do you think your goalie That's played the toughest. That's the toughest one of them all because you you outshoot a team forty two to twenty two and your team loses five to one or five to two and what's obvious to everybody is never you can't say word one about it you can't say well we we gave them too many quality chances no you didn't you gave them you gave them two quality chances and and three that shouldn't have got gone anywhere near the net and and the truth is you can't say it. You can never say it because it'll destroy it. It'll destroy your relationship with your goaltender. You have to protect him. And that is the toughest. In, in all the things in sport that I've talked about in, in live, it's the toughest thing because you want to say, you know what, Jonesy wasn't so good tonight. Yeah. Well, John, Rick, let's just go back to uh, speaking of that. Uh, go back to the I. You did end up winning a Coach of the Year award there and then end up at the HL before Buffalo came a calling. How was all that sort of filtering throughout your career? Oh, boy. I was I was in Flint, Michigan, had a wonderful time there. Love, uh, you know, Flint gets it gets castigated a little bit, but Flint was a wonderful town to me in the suburbs. I lived in the suburbs. They were beautiful. And and the fans were incredibly avid. I love. I, I really liked liked that town, and I liked the atmosphere, and I loved the team. I had um, I had Frank Perkins there as an assistant coach. Then I had Don Waddell in there, who we've remained friends ever since. And I've given him a job or two, and he's given me a job or two over the years. And um, yeah. 
it's been fun, but that's where Donnie, Donnie came in. He had retired from playing and he came in just to help us out one night and played. And he decided he liked it. And he ended up, he ended up with a great career in management through it. But uh, New Haven was Nick, Nick Beverly. We were associated with the LA Kings um, when I was in Flint. And I guess, I guess they liked what I did there because they offered me the job coaching New Haven. And we, we took a team that was, was they were picked for, we were picked for last place in the AHL and we ended up losing in the finals in six games. So Jerry Meehan and the Buffalo Sabres noticed that and interviewed me and then decided they liked what they heard. Now talk about... Well, it's funny, oh. it's funny, sorry, Mike, but okay, it's funny good. listening to you talk about these small towns and everything. And uh, just watching my son, who normally plays in Cincinnati uh, every year in the ECHL, uh, ended up going to Fort Wayne this year because Cincinnati didn't go in. And they ended up winning the Kelly Cup, the championship. So uh, that was pretty cool. And, and in a place like Fort Wayne, which is not, you know, well, it's a big hockey town. I mean, big deal. They put ten thousand. They right. put twelve thousand in that building every every game almost. And uh, you know that that those are the places that you just love to play and love to coach and and so on because the, the people are so passionate about their hometown team. Oh yeah, and and Fort Wayne's. It's a great example of a town that's, it's a good, it's a beautiful place to play hockey, I can tell you, because they like, they like and enjoy their hockey in Fort Wayne. And I like, and I, I always enjoyed going there for games. Now, I was going to say to you, Rick, I, I know you finally landed a job in Buffalo. When you finally got there, everything you've been through from, again, driving the bus and doing everything, was it, as you imagined, harder, or maybe not quite as difficult when there's other people to do other responsible things around the team? You know what I, you know, the only thing that I don't think you can ever prepare yourself for is the mm -hmm. attention. Um, there's a silly looking goose right there. <laughs> <laughs> John Tucker or, or the other guy? Either one. <laughs> um, but the attention you get as an NHL coach is, is just staggering. And I can remember... In Buffalo, you know, I was I played there, so I was known a little bit anyway. But I remember our first one of our first trips to Montreal, and I walked outside the hotel, and people were honking their horns at me. And I'm going, oh boy, this is a little different. <laughs> but you don't you don't realize as as a player as as a minor league coach, you didn't. I never realized how much you're in the media as a coach. The face your face is known. And you can ask Bruce, Bruce Boudreau, you talked about Bruce earlier. I know he knows what I mean. It's just the attention was amazing. And I'm not, a, I, I don't, I don't really like that kind of attention. And it, that was the toughest part for me to get used to. I didn't mind the, I didn't mind the, 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 the question and answers after a game. That was okay because that's in my, my purview. But, but just the, the amount of attention I got as an NHL coach was amazing. So let's let's take it one step further. The biggest challenge coaching from the minors to the NHL, did you have to adjust? Well, we already discussed that you did have to be more, you know, aware of certain players' personalities and stuff like that versus the minor league guys possibly. But I, I touch on this only because at the NHL level now you're dealing with bigger egos, agents, the owner who's paying the freight, and of course your boss, the GM who drafted or signed this player. So how was your sort of tack approach to players? 
And all, and all the and all the donkeys that, that he had as players. Yeah, that, well, that too, <laughs> of course. No, it's it, it it it's the only thing. It's a little bit more difficult because there are some egos. There, there, are, like you're you're coaching the Atlantic Coast Hockey League. There's not these guys aren't weren't stars. All of them in junior. Some of them were actually mm-hmm. and expected to be treated a little differently, but not like not like coming in as, as like Pivey was a star right from the word go in uh, in hockey in pro hockey so I don't know how you dealt with Rick Vive I think he was pretty easy he just wanted to go out and play and slap somebody but um, I remember you got you had you had the penalty minutes in the uh, in the WHA there and before well, I, I was just I was just trying to make everybody aware that I wasn't going to go anywhere so you weren't going to intimidate me and you weren't going to make me leave the building or anything like that. And I was coming back the next trip, too. Well, so I, I just wanted everybody to know that. I do remember that. It was good. For a guy for a guy who was a 50-goal scorer, that's pretty good. Yeah. I think that might have helped. That helped a little bit because it gave me a little more room. And, oh, yeah. And, you know, they, they, they kind of just, you know, let up on me and said, okay, well, I mean, he's a goal scorer now. We can't fight him. Uh, at least are tough guys anyway who beat the hell out of me all the time. They couldn't come after me because I was a goal scorer. And when, that was and kind you, of the unwritten rule. When you went to the front of the net, they knew you were going to hit them back. So they probably left oh, yeah. you alone a little bit. Now, for both of you guys, you guys can answer this, and I'll throw this one at you both here. I, as we've discussed already, touched on, not every player and coach get along. You both have had coaches you haven't got along with and maybe players you haven't got along with. Now you can reflect back and think, Maybe a certain coach wasn't such a prick after all, or now I kind of get what he was maybe trying to get through to me. Yeah, I just, I, I think one thing I believe is, the first, certainly for my personality, I played better for coaches who I thought actually cared about me. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was a little more difficult for me when I didn't, I didn't believe in that a coach had, you know, cared, cared about my interests at all. But um, I, I think... I don't know. I, there, there certainly there were coaches that that were like that. That were very, very good coaches. I had a, I had a couple of them that had that had great success, but um, but it just didn't work so well for me. And that's maybe that's my my failing, not his. Yeah, it's kind of. I, I have to agree. I mean, uh, you know, the coaches I had, some of them, I, I you know, I, I and and again, I, I don't think there was a coach I didn't like as a person or anything. It was just sometimes the way they, they coached or whatever the case might be. But I had my best years under Mike Nicklock, one of the quietest coaches that I had my entire career, who like like clockwork probably once a week would just call me into his his office or or maybe say uh, down in the restaurant, sit down and, and we just have a little chat. And it wasn't even about hockey yeah. most of the time. It was about something else. And to me, that meant something because that meant that this man cares about me and my success as well as his own. And to me, that that's a guy that I'm going to go, well, we always said you go through a wall for a person. Yeah. And in our day, when they asked you to, you just did it. And now when you say go through the wall, they turn around and go, well, what's in it for me? <laughs> that's right. That's right. But you're you're 100 percent right. And my 
like Floyd Smith and and Terry Slater were two guys that I I played for that I would have done anything for, and I I, I should have felt the same way about every coach. I think there was a, it wasn't a conscious thing. It was a subconscious thing where I didn't feel as strongly about some coaches, but I know that I played more confidently for those guys, for sure. So let's, let's take that sort of uh, thought process. We, we've been touching all around this, but so now that you go back to, from the Sabres, you go back to the eye. So I'm going to talk about the transition going back to there. Now, as a player playing at the National Hockey League level, and you played in the minors, you were now you've coached at both levels. You're going back. Did you have a different this approach thing is always big with me, as you can hear today. Did you maybe take a harder directive on players, or maybe a little more patience? Because obviously, the goal is for that player now to try and reach a higher level, like the NHL. Well, I, I can honestly say that when I when I began coaching, I wanted players and whatever approach I took for it. Mm-hmm. But I wanted players to feel the way I felt when I played for Floyd and for Terry. Um, Good answer. Whether I had to, whether that was push them a little harder or give them a little crap at once in a while, uh, I wanted them to feel like, the, at the end of the day, I wanted them to feel like I had, I did care about what happened to them and, and whether they had a successful career and whether they were happy. And, I, and if they were having a good, good life at home. I, all of those things come into play. And, and you're, you can be there. And I always told people this, tried to tell people this, you, you can't be the pal of a player you're coaching, but you can be their friend. And there's a difference. There's a big difference to me. And I always wanted them to think of me as a friend. That's a good answer. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. It's, uh, yeah that, I, I like that because I took a very similar approach, Rick. It's unbelievable. I'm Similar, we, we both thought about but I'm not, the coaching. I'm not surprised that you did. No. Yeah, well, I mean, that was just the way I felt. And I. it's kind of funny. It was a funny story when I was in Charleston. I had a captain that I had a lot of good, really good character guys in, in South Carolina. And my captain and my two assistants were. And we were on a five-game losing streak. And I called them in. And I said, guys, tomorrow you're going to pick up the paper and I'm going to rip you three guys in the paper. And I said, don't worry about it. Don't pay attention to it. It has nothing to do with you guys. You guys are working your tails off. I got to wake up those 17 other donkeys in that room. And uh, they said, yeah, okay, no problem. And uh, the next day, because, you know, I figured if they picked all those other guys picked up the paper the next day and they read what I said about my captain and my assistants, they're going to go, well, what the heck could he do to me? That was was a great move. Hit me up. That was a great move. They trusted you though. I think I did it. I think I did it two or three times. And my, my core guys and my, my leaders were unbelievable. They, they just, they were right beside me the whole time and never wavered once and i i really appreciated that well if they That's if they cool. hadn't trust if they hadn't trusted you they probably wouldn't have gone along with it now yeah rick uh, this is for rick dudley now, any player or players you feel especially proud of maybe leading them on the path to success with oh, with boy. some direction there's so many but i'll say ray leblanc mm-hmm. who ended up playing certainly i think he played in the olympics and played a little bit in the national hockey league uh, he played for me in the Atlantic Coast Hockey League. Uh, came out of that draft that I talked about. Um, boy, I can go on. That's a good story right there. there. There's so many. Marty St. Louis. Pardon me? Marty St. Louis, didn't he? Oh, Marty St. Louis. 
Marty was a guy that I'd watched in the International Hockey League. And oh, okay. You didn't coach him. I did coach. I, I general managed him. I didn't coach him. Um, but he was a guy that obviously he turned out to be pretty good. He was on the way to, to Europe and and we had to offer him and I had it was really a big argument. We had to offer him, I think it was a hundred and fifty or two hundred thousand dollars a year for two years or he was going to Europe because he got money, he got a hundred and fifty thousand there, but it was clear. And I think Marty always wanted to stay, but he couldn't turn that down for his family. And I had we, I went through considerable arguments to sign that. Imagine that in today's world. Marty St. Louis was signed for for minimum contract, and he ended up, yeah. and I can remember the argument I made. I, I, I never said, and I to be honest, I didn't say Marty St. Louis is going to be a star and a Hall of Famer. I said he can play in the league. I, this kid can play in the league. And, and I remember Tom Wilson, Tom Wilson, who was the CEO of the, of the Tampa Bay Lightning at the time, I believe, um, said if Duds feels that strongly about it, we should do it. So that one was that one was kind of fun. Um, there's been there's just yeah. there's there's too many to even think about, really. Okay, um, well, he, he's a guy. He's a guy that I love to talk about because I got to coach him two years in the American League in St. John, New Brunswick, which was Calgary's farm team. And I couldn't believe every time they said we need a right winger, we need a left winger. I said, "Never went well, up." Marty St. Louis, our best best player by a mile. I said he can play left, right, doesn't matter. And then when it came time uh, when Al Coates and uh, Nick Plano got fired, we had a big meeting in Calgary, and and they went over the depth chart. Well, they didn't want to keep Marty, and I I couldn't convince them to keep him. I said, guys. Really? I said, you put this guy with the right players, players, and he's going to be a 30-30 guy in the National Hockey League. Never, I didn't know he was going to go on and, you know, win heart trophies and scoring races and Hall of Fame and everything else. But I knew he was a heck of a player because I spent every single day with him. They didn't. So they didn't see what I saw on a daily basis. And, that, uh, and, you, that, and you were right. Crazy, right. It shows you how we started this conversation with, a conversation about how the game's changed and a player that size, most people didn't think he could play. But Marty St. Louis, and you'll attest to this, Rick, he was a very strong small player. Powerful. Yeah, I mean, his legs were like tree trunks. And I yeah. mean, he could get away from big guys and corners and that sort of thing and make plays because he was so strong. And 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 not just, not just his body, his mind. I mean, that kid was not going to be stopped. No. I mean, he was a great kid. He was the hardest working guy on the ice every single day and, and probably our best player. And I could not convince Calgary to keep him. And then he was on. In retrospect, I'm glad you couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, as we said at the beginning of this, uh, you know, time is going to be against us. So we got oh, about eight, eight or nine minutes left here. But I do want to get into the management side, the Duds, and how you got involved in that. And, Take us through that. Oh boy, I started as I said. I started in the. Uh, do you want to recently or? Well, all of it. Like I know you, you okay. were in Toronto. You moved around. I mean, obviously they thought things of you because they kept coming after you. Well, I, I'm I'm proud of the fact that I've. I think Berkey passed me as the having more GM jobs. I think he had. I think he had a fifth job in Calgary, but we were tied with four each for a, for a long time. And, um, but I. Uh, 
I've been incredibly lucky. I started in the Atlantic Coast Hockey League. The one thing, the one thing I had the humility to start at any level. I didn't care where it was, and the, my friend in the Atlantic Coast Hockey League got me started on the on a path that's that's been a whole lot of fun, and I've I've enjoyed the successes, and and I I, I think. I think one of the reasons why I kept getting hired was because when you had a when you had a situation that was was pretty tough, like a last place team, I I was perceived as a guy who could could make it turn around relatively quickly. Well, you got traded for a player, didn't you, one time? I did. I did. The, Ottawa, the Ottawa Senators, uh, Rob Zaminer, and I think a second round pick. I'm not sure about that part, but I think so. <laughs> to the Tampa Bay Lightning, and I like to think that it was worth it because <laughs> a few years later they won their first Stanley Cup. So um, we were proud of that. We were proud of the work we did there. That was a, we worked our ass off to get that team where it was. Well. You obviously lived by the line, never looked back, with stops in Cincinnati, Buffalo, and Florida on multiple occasions. I mean, never mind burning a bridge. You just took a boat or flew there. But speaking of Cincinnati, we got to touch on this. You remember the Cincinnati Hockey Hall of Fame? Yeah. That's one for you should keep uh, Justin in mind there, Squid, for that one. But also, uh, two sport athletes. Uh, we have to get there. We have two sport athletes we talked about with your lacrosse career. But what I really want to go is, I think you know where I'm going with this, Rick, because national TV show, to tell the truth, you were one of the uh, guests. I was. Talk about that experience. Well, they called me and said they wanted me on. I was in Buffalo at the time. And and they called and said they wanted me to go on to tell, to tell the truth because I was one of the very rare people who played two professional sports at the same time. So I they flew me to uh, New York City, first class. When I came back, I was coach. But um, we went, we went I went there in first class, and it was an impossible thing. I thought that every one of them would guess me right, but they had. We had enough time that the two other guys and I went out to lunch, and I told them as much about lacrosse and the National Hockey League. And one one of the play, one of the fellows was a Ranger season ticket holder, so he knew a little bit about hockey. And when we got in into the studio, I hesitated on every answer. I'd wait and wait and wait and finally say it, but I had to answer the truth. And and so somehow, some way, I you know I'm a grizzled guy at the po that point. And I'm I'm figuring they're going. There's no chance. But they all guessed. They guessed three of them guessed the Ranger season ticket holder, and and the other one guessed the other one, and I. It somehow turned out, and we got we got to split five hundred dollars, and I flew back coach. <laughs> oh, wow, wow, that's uh, you know it's funny it's funny, Mike, because Rick, we used to play Trivial Pursuit on the bus, but not the the board game. We just used the cards, and we'd write down if you got right answers, wrong answers. Rick used to come back. He knew every goddamn answer on every card almost. It was like, I, I swear, I think he stayed up at night and memorized them. But no, I don't think it was. He, I mean, he's pretty intelligent. I mean, Thanks. some of the questions that he would that he would get, I'd be like, like, come on, really? Like, how the hell did he know that? Hey, you're around long enough. It, it, you experience <laughs> a lot of different things. Well, let's 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 test both your memories here, and I. But Squid, uh -oh. Squid and I have talked about this a lot. Now, the and you can even refer to the Atlantic League also. But 
Players talk about the uniqueness of the Rebel League, which is referred to, the WG is referred to, but the quirky, the bizarre, or head-scratching incidents that occurred. Aside from teams showing up to think when if the paychecks are going to clear, the bills are paid so lights are gone, even the hot water will work. Any occurrences in this regard, you talked about driving a bus that stood out to you over your years? Or any crazy things you saw? Yeah, um, my first exhibition game was in Minnesota, and um, the fellow lined up against me was, was a crazy guy, and his name escapes me at the moment, which usually names are, I'm terrible with names, but he had an afro that was probably made him about seven feet tall, and he had his skates looked like they were size 14 and he was a he was a he was a tough guy and they lined he lined up against me at the opening face off and i can remember thinking i just left the stanley cup finals and i can remember thinking did i make a mistake was that billy goldthorpe <laughs> yeah it was indeed yes it was you Goldie, yep and i've talked to him on the phone a few times but he had he had a huge afro and he looked like it didn't, it looked unnatural. And I'm going, this is a tough guy on the other team. I don't know if I've done the right thing here because they had a tough team too. And I thought, geez, I'm going to be fighting every night. Um, but, but it was, you know what, the funny thing about the WHA, I believe in my heart that the last year of the WHA, there were six teams. I think four of them would have made the playoffs in the National Hockey League. That's my opinion. Yeah. There were some. There were some top. The Winnipeg was always a really good team, and there were there were several Hartford. They were good hockey teams. Well, look at that Birmingham team with all the kids. Look at that. What would that team have been like four years later? Oh yeah. Well, we we were never going to get into the National Hockey League with all our uh, the guys that we had, oh. the young players, because no, no way the NHL was going to allow that. Not a chance. Not a chance. That's the one. The one. The one disappointment I had with the WHA was not because. I wasn't on the team. I was sold back to Buffalo, but I thought Cincinnati could have become a good market for the National Hockey League. They weren't a great market for the WHA because they didn't accept it as the best league. And they're used to having, they had an NBA team, they had the NFL team, Major League Baseball. I think they would have supported a National Hockey League team. I really do. Yeah, they might even still today, Rick, because you've got the baseball stadium, the football stadium, the hockey rink, all right. in a row right by the river there uh, going into, over to Kentucky. And my son plays there in the ECHL. As a, he's a player and he's the captain there, and he helps the coach out a lot with video and stuff like that. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I really think that that team could, could definitely be uh, It's a great sports team. Yeah. Yeah, my, my son loves it there. He he just can't say enough about it. I enjoyed my time there. Well, guys, it's, uh, that time is always against us. And, uh, you know, as well as like to say, we don't, not like Mick Jagger, who has time on his side, we don't. And, uh, Rick Dudley, we want to thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, this was fun, guys. We could talk to you for hours. I'm, just, I'm sorry I forgot, I forgot a few names, but. No, well, that's okay. We got the idea. Hey, you, you remember them. That's all right. That's all right, Duds. Yeah, well, he's got a good memory. We don't. No. <laughs> I don't anyway. Well, I, I always say I got punched in the head a few too many times. 
<laughs> yeah, well, I think from the looks he gave a few back too, so I think it was probably an even trade. <laughs> so, anyway, I want to thank you again, Dad, so much Thanks, for joining us, and uh, good luck with the Panthers next year. Thanks very much. Okay. Yeah. See you guys. Okay, thanks, Eric. Bye-bye.